Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Those of us that have small children in our lives have probably spent more time with them than we might ever have wished over the last, oh, say, year and a half. And that has made us question our own parenting decisions for those of us that are parents in ways I think just wasn't happening a couple years ago. There was one particular rough day where I was doom scrolling on Twitter and I came across a bunch of posts about a new book that hadn't come out yet by a woman named Melinda Wenner Moyer. And the book was called How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes. (laughs) I have to say... From the title alone and from the discussion that was happening on Twitter, I thought to myself, I need to talk to this woman. So I sent her a direct message, and sure enough, she agreed to come on Inquiring Minds. Because it turns out that this book isn't just your regular parenting book where a parent with some experience tells you what worked for them, which in general probably won't work for you. Because after all, you're different, kids are different, and that's what science is for. But instead of just espousing advice from her own experience, Melinda did the research. And so How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes is a whole book about science-based strategies for better parenting from tots to teens. Although I think the sweet spot, really, well, at least in my case, because I don't have teens yet, (laughs) is that space in between tottering and teening, when so many other parenting books just kind of give up on you. Melinda is an award-winning contributing editor at Scientific American. She's a regular contributor to the New York Times. And she used to have a Slate parenting column that was incredibly popular. This is her first book. And I can just say, from personal experience, it's a winner. Melinda Wenner-Moyer, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me. I have been looking forward to this interview for so long because I am raising an asshole, (laughs) or so sometimes I feel. Um, I'm not. He's wonderful. Both my kids are wonderful. Uh, But I'm definitely at the point where I feel like you were when you started to realize that this book is so necessary, which is when the kids are past the sort of early years of 
all the decisions that you have to make that people like Emily Oster and, and others have have covered so beautifully, like whether or not to breastfeed and, you know, all these other choices that we have to make. But then we get to kids going to elementary school and beyond, and they're really hasn't been um, a lot of information for parents that is scientifically sound. There's a lot of advice. (laughs) There (laughs) are a lot of methods. There are a lot of things out there. But what made you think that the science was there? Because me, even as a scientist myself, I I just didn't think people knew much about how to raise kids who just are nice people. Yeah. You know, I was surprised by how much science there was, actually. I sort of realized it over time as I was writing a parenting column for Slate. And in that column, I tackled kind of like any question. I mean, including like breastfeeding questions and vaccine questions and ear infection questions, you know, based on science. Like I would basically answer my own parenting questions with science. And some of the most interesting questions that I had and answered were those that related to like developing character and values in kids. And so I, every time I had a question and I dug into the science, I discovered that there was actually like a lot of science and very little of it had been covered. I felt like it just wasn't out there in the public sphere. And that was one of the big reasons that I wanted to write the book. Yeah. To sort of fill that void. So now it's out there. So Melinda's book is called How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes. The first question I have is, how do you get an NPR interview with that title? (laughs) It's so funny because I just did a bunch of radio interviews over the past couple of weeks, and each show had a different way of dealing with it. The funniest one was there was somebody who he's a he fishes and he said something about there's a term called a bass pole, I guess, in fishing. And so he just said at the beginning of the interview, every time I want to say a-hole, I'm going to say bass pole. (laughs) And that's how that worked. Um, Other, yeah, other hosts have said jerks and just use the word jerks. Some have said a-holes. So it's been very interesting to see how they all refer to it. And and, and then a couple of radio, radio interviews I've done, they just have said the word assholes. And I don't know how like they've gotten, I just like, I did one at a, um, it wasn't a CBC interview, but it was like a Toronto radio station. And they just said the word asshole. And I was like, okay, I guess we're doing that then. And I, I said the word asshole too. And we'll see how that goes. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they're not publicly funded, you know? Maybe. Yeah. That must be it, I guess. I, I don't know. I don't know all the distinctions, but um, it has been an in- interesting thing to sort of navigate and also to like have talked about with my editor before we published, like, is this a good idea to use this word? Is this going to tank the book or is it going to make it sell better? Like, you know, we didn't really know. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it seems to be doing just fine, given how much press it's getting and also how good it is, of course, uh, because I just think it's just so full of really interesting information. But the other side of it, though, is one thing that you addressed right from the beginning, which is that parents are tired. We're, we're busy. We're tired. The last thing we need is to be told that we're doing things wrong because we often already feel that way. So how do you navigate the fact that there's so much information out there for parents? We just can't consume it all and we just get fatigued by it. And, you know, this idea that like a book length um, informational thing would actually be something that we could apply and use. Yeah. I certainly struggled with the idea of even writing a parenting book for this very reason that, first of all, like I'm struggling as a parent. I'm constantly making mistakes. I don't know what I'm doing half the time. So like, who am I to write a parenting book? And I also do get frustrated sometimes. There's so many parenting books and a lot of them are just based on like theory and conjecture. And so I think there is space for a book that tries to answer a lot of questions parents have, but using 
evidence and using science and really rooting it in that. And, you know, I did worry about like adding to the parental burden that we all have, especially coming out of this pandemic. Like, I don't want parents to be reading my book and think, oh my gosh, I've been doing everything wrong. I've ruined my kids. And so I tried to think of it as like, I'm, I'm trying to answer questions that you might have had in your head that you didn't know the answers to and make it easier maybe for you as a parent. And also like in order to sort of try to temper the judgment aspect, I, I just tried to be as open and candid in the book about like my own fallibility and, and the fact that like, I am constantly making mistakes. We all are like, nobody's perfect and that's okay. And sometimes that's actually like a good thing. So I don't know, you know, it, it was a really tricky balance and, and it was really hard. And I don't know whether I got it quite right, but yeah, I'm, I'm very like cognizant of, I, I just don't want to be adding to parental stress basically. Yeah. And I, I think like, I think your book is going to be one of those books that's just going to be on my bedside table for years because I feel like it's something that you can continue to look back into. Like, it's not, you know, it's not like you can read it once and be like, oh, okay, here's the five-step strategy to do X. Um, it's like, oh, now I'm facing this other problem. Oh, what did, what did Melinda say the science said about that? Um, so it's like, that's how I'm going to use it. Uh, and so I feel like it's, it's a nice reference from that perspective too. One of the ways in which what you wrote about in your book really kind of has stuck with me and I don't think I'll have any trouble remembering it, um, was your section on race, especially as a white parent. You know, often I feel like I just don't know what to do other than, you know, expose my kids to people of other races, you know, make sure that we show that our own friends come from many different backgrounds and races and sort of expose them to it. But but what you're suggesting is that a lot of the times white parents get it wrong, even if they have the best of intentions. So let's let's talk a little bit about that. And I'll come right out and say it that a lot of, you know, my first instinct was, well, my kid is born colorblind. So I just want to protect them from even seeing race as long as possible. And 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 that's really a function of white privilege. Like I'm allowed, I'm able to do that. But a kid who is who is black you know, they, they have to address race right, right on because of the society in which they're born. Yeah, this was an area where the research was very clear and it was really counterintuitive. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think a lot of white parents have this sort of well-meaning approach. I mean, I thought this way too until I read the research that if we don't talk about race, if we don't kind of make it real to our kids, then they won't notice it. They won't pay attention to it. They won't make a big deal out of it and they won't become racist. And that feels like a reasonable assumption. But what the research actually shows is that, well, kids do see skin color. They see race from a very young age. Um, one study involved three-month-olds, and these babies were shown pictures of adults with different skin colors. And the researchers found that the babies spent a lot more time looking at the pictures of adults who shared the skin color of their caregivers. And that sort of interpreted as these babies preferring to look at pictures of adults who, who share the same skin color as their caregivers. And so, yeah, they're, they're noticing these differences. And the problem is too, kids, when they're growing up, one of their big jobs is to like look around and try to understand what's important in the world, like what social categories matter and what, you know, why does the world look the way it does? And they're constantly playing detective. And with race, they can very easily see a racial hierarchy in our society. It's very salient. I mean, we just see that people of power and people with wealth are often people who are white. 
And, you know, we see it with people in positions of political power. We'd see it in Congress. We see it, you know, we've only had one black president and kids, you know, they are intrigued by that. They notice that. They also notice that there's a lot of de facto segregation in communities. They notice, you know, that maybe like in their schools, there could be segregation with more white kids in, in the honors classes and, and the like. And if there aren't adults there to explain why this hierarchy exists and to explain that racism is one of the key drivers of, of this hierarchy, then kids are going to kind of come, they're going to try to draw their own conclusions. And unfortunately, the simplest conclusion that you can draw when you look at a hierarchy like this and you don't see any other explanation is that white people are just better or smarter. This is essentially what happens. And the research very clearly shows that when parents, when white parents do talk to their kids about race and do try to explain racism, their kids are much less likely to um, score highly on tests of racial prejudice. There are some really interesting studies, actually, because the studies on race with white parents are very, very hard to do because white parents hate talking about race. And so researchers, when they, they were trying to design an interventional study to see you know, over time, if we ask like half of a group of parents that we recruit to talk to their kids about race and the other half, we tell them, you know, don't let them go about their lives normally. They found that like the the parents they, that they asked to talk about race, like 90% of them refused to do it. They Some of them dropped out immediately. Others just came back after the two or three weeks or however long it was and said, sorry, I didn't do it. I couldn't do it. I couldn't bring myself to do it. So it's actually really, really hard <laughs> to test the effects of this kind of intervention. But when they were, you know, when they did actually analyze the subset of parents and kids who actually had the conversations, they found that those kids did score lower on tests of racial prejudice. So it works. It's just really hard for us. Wow. And one of the things that has really been talked about, I feel like actually is going to hopefully induce some real social change, is that often the, the burden of kind of talking about race is put on people of color, unfairly so. So I wonder you know, if you can give some advice to white parents about how to navigate this, you know, these kinds of conversations or where they should look to, to have advice about it. Is it just a matter of like talking overtly and saying, you know, hey, there's this issue in our society and that doesn't align with the values in our family? Or, you know, are there better or worse ways of, of talking about this? Well, I think that's certainly something that parents should do is to, yeah, talk about racism and talk about you know, there's lots of opportunities. Now you see Black Lives Matter signs. You can say, you know, let me let me explain what this means and, and what it doesn't mean because there's a lot of misunderstandings. But also, I think just like not shying away from the topic of and the issue of skin color is really helpful. So there are so many ways in which we will kind of like, even when our children present us with opportunities, we will not take them. Like if you're in a grocery store and your kid says something like, that woman's skin is really dark or like, look, you know, and, and kids, kids say things like this. And usually the instinct of white parents is to, I mean, we get super embarrassed and we sometimes will like shush our children and say, oh, don't, that's not nice. Don't say things like that, which really is sending our kids the message that like race is bad. Skin color is bad. Like color is bad. We don't talk about this. And it really adds this sort of like negative connotation to the idea of race and skin color, which is not what we want to be doing with our kids. So instead, like 
in those moments when our kids comment on somebody's skin color or ask questions, you know, even though we feel embarrassed, and especially if it's in public, the best thing we can do is take a deep breath and, and try to just sort of give a factual, straightforward, like non-emotional answer. So in that situation, like if your kid says something about somebody's skin color, you could say, yes, her skin is darker than ours and skin color comes in all different shades. And if you wanted to, you could even get into the science. Like everybody um, has different levels of a chemical called melanin in their skin and how much melanin you have is based on, you know, how much melanin your parents had and your ancestors had and where you lived. And, you know, really just like kind of give a straightforward, like non-emotional answer to their questions. And that, so that kind of thing is really, really useful too, because then to kids, like then it's just like a normal aspect of life and color isn't bad and these differences aren't bad. And, and, you know, so that, that can be really helpful. But beyond that too, if you're like, not sure, like how to talk about skin color or how to even start a conversation about racism, I think books are a really great conduit to these kinds of conversations. There are so many wonderful books. Um, You can just search for like social justice books or books on race and you'll find, you know, there's all sorts of great lists that are compiled by all sorts of organizations and, and newspapers and the like. And those can be really great ways if you use them and actually do have conversations with your kids afterwards though. So like some other studies that are really interesting have shown, let's see, researchers, I remember in one study invited mothers, unfortunately, a lot of studies, parenting studies involve mothers and not fathers, um, mothers and their kids into the lab and had them read books that were essentially designed to elicit conversations about race and skin color. And they found that when the moms read the books, sometimes the kids would interrupt them with a question And like, if the question was explicitly about skin color, they found the moms would change the subject or refuse to answer or just pretend they didn't hear their kids. (laughs) Because again, like we just have so much trouble. So, so if you are going to use books, like read them, but also engage with your child because they might have questions and they might want to talk about the issues that it raises later. And so just make sure that you're also doing that, (laughs) even though it's hard. Yes. So that sounds like very usable advice. So the good news is that the Black Lives Matter movement, I feel like, has given us, you know, some traction and that, you know, social justice is, again, at the forefront and that feels very hopeful. It feels like that's a good thing. But before then, you you talk about how there was this rise in not so good behavior amongst kids and others in bullying and even hate crimes. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what you think was causing that is it just that we were paying more attention to it or, or was there actually evidence that, th- that more bullying and, and really poor behavior was, was being committed over, over the last few years? So there is good evidence that, that rates of bullying have been going up since about 2016. With things like hate crimes, well, there is definitely evidence that like from the FBI track hate crimes that among adults, hate crimes have been going up. There's not really great data on what goes on with kids and hate crimes. But there have been surveys done in like the past five years that suggest that things aren't great on that front. Um, And uh, for instance, the Southern Poverty Law Center has done a lot of surveys with teachers. And especially right after the 2016 election, they surveyed teachers about what they were hearing kids saying. And they the teachers said they were hearing a lot of rhetoric that basically came from Trump. Um, So build a wall. There were kids chanting this in school cafeterias. There were um, kids who 
said to other kids, like, let grab her by the pussy, like using his exact words. So one of the theories that I kind of propose in the book is that some of this might be coming from you know, directly from Trump and from like the bad behavior that he was sort of fostering starting when he was running for president and through his presidency. Um, And there was even some research that suggested that in counties that were more pro-Trump in terms of voting for Trump in the election, that bullying increased more in schools in the pro-Trump districts than in the pro-Clinton districts, which was interesting. And also, you know, it's not proof that what's going on that 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 bullying is increasing because of Trump, but it also it is supportive evidence that that could be what's going on. So there's also some research from decades ago, from the 1960s, and it was conducted by Albert Bandura, who actually just passed away. And it's part of um, he developed a theory called social learning theory, and it is essentially the idea that kids learn from the adults around them, and especially from adults that are in positions of power. They look to adults in positions of power to sort of figure out how to behave. And actually, some of his um, research, it's very famous. It's like... um, Bobo the doll. Yes. Thank you. I couldn't remember the name. The doll. Yes. Bobo the doll. So essentially, they had kids watching an adult engage with a doll. And some of the adults were like beating the doll and, you know, pulling it apart and just really (laughs) abusing this doll. And other kids watched adults playing with the doll in a much more gentle way. And then later on in the experiment, researchers kind of riled up the kids, like got them frustrated. I think they offered them like a, a candy or a present or something and then said, oh no, never mind. I can't give you that. So the kids were kind of frustrated. And then they left them alone with that same doll to see what the kids did while they were frustrated. And and the kids who saw the adults beating this doll were much more likely to do the same. And they were like hitting them over and over and over again. And so the conclusion from this is, you know, kids they learn how to behave based on what they see adults doing. And this is especially true of adults in power. And so it's not crazy to think that kids who were watching Trump on TV and hearing him talk the way he talked, looked at him and thought, well, this is, I guess, how I should act too, if I want to be powerful. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! 
The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Yeah, it's a, it's those those studies were so impactful and just as you mentioned, yeah, he, we just lost him. He he was 95. You know, I think I think when you see there you can actually find I think videos of of the, that they actually used and and you see these kids just really going after these dolls. It's really kind of powerful to watch. And I wonder in an age where kids are exposed to so much uh social media and you know so many other kind of examples, what can parents do uh to counter the fact that there all are a lot of these images out there that uh, potentially could affect their kids' behavior? Well, I think we can't necessarily shield our kids from it entirely. I mean, I certainly wasn't keeping cable news on while my <laughs> while Trump was, you know, on the TV all the time. But, you know, we have to expect that they are going to be exposed to some of this from, you know, peers and we don't know who, who knows. Yeah. So I think we have to engage with our kids about it. And we should be having conversations about things that are happening in in the news and, and disturbing things that are happening. And I think this is, again, like a counterintuitive thing for parents. We want to protect our kids' innocence. We want to assume like they don't need to know about this. And we should, you know, we're better off just not talking about it at all. But, you know, kids are absorbing more than we realize sometimes. And it can actually be really instructive and constructive for us to, in an age appropriate way, talk about what's going on and talk about why, why we let's, if there's behavior that we really think is hurtful, like talking about why it's hurtful, talking about why we don't agree with it, because these kinds of conversations, we are really sharing our values and our worldview with our kids. And that can be, you know, really, really helpful for kids. And really, I think from what I've read, kids often just don't know how their parents feel about a lot of different issues. And like, they just don't even have a clue. Like, for instance, they don't know whether their parents feel that black people are lesser than white people, because like, we don't actually say these things to our kids. And so one of the big take homes from my book, I think really is like, have more of these awkward, difficult conversations that you don't want to have <laughs> with your kids. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things I think is like, is interesting too about just even the framework of your book is is that I think a lot of times when we make parenting decisions, it's in reaction to our kids doing something wrong, right? So like we all resonate with this idea that, you know, our kids are assholes and we want to make them not assholes <laughs> um, as opposed to, and you even come out out to say that like, you know, sometimes kids are supposed to act like assholes <laughs> in order for them to learn. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this, you know, the approach that I think a lot of parents take, which and which I, I do fully admit it, which is like put a bandaid on the problem rather than trying to what I before I had kids, I thought that, you know, you're going to I'm going to I'm going to water this garden and out are going to, you know, come these beautiful flowers. But now I feel like I'm just weeding the garden all the time. <laughs> right. Yeah. As parents, we don't make things like super explicit. Like we expect our kids to know things that they couldn't possibly know. And we expect them to have skills that they are just not ready to have. And then when they do something that shows that like they do not have the skills we thought we did, it's, it's like, oh my gosh, why are they acting like this? You know, wh what's going on? And, and also sometimes I feel like we interpret their 
mistakes as like, they're trying to drive us crazy. Like they're pushing our buttons on purpose. You know, like my daughter used to have meltdowns every night at dinner time, like right before we sat down to dinner. And my husband was like, she's planning these, like she's doing it on purpose to ruin our dinner. <laughs> and I was like, well, I think actually she's just really tired and hungry because <laughs> it's been a big day of school. And like, she's, you know, she's just like at the end of her rope, but sometimes, yeah. And this is also true. I think of bullying, like we kind of expect that our kids know what bullying is and know not to do it. And that like, we don't really have to talk about it. And so in talking with the researchers I did for this book, I feel like one of the big themes that kept coming up was like, be explicit and bring things up before they become a problem. Like talk to your kids about what kind of behavior you expect and how you expect them to treat others before you hear from the principal that they've been bullying, because it may well be that like, they just don't really get you know, that what they're doing is hurtful. They may not be able to make that connection yet. They may not understand that. And so, so talking to our kids and having more of these sort of deliberate and, and yeah, intentional conversations about like how the world works and what we expect from them and how we hope they treat other people and how their actions affect other people, those kinds of things that feel so obvious to us as adults, but aren't to kids, those can be really, really helpful. So if you had to pick one strategy, and I think you have something like, seven character traits that you then have strategies to build. If you had to pick one strategy, and it doesn't necessarily have to be towards the one character trait that you think is more important, but one that our listeners could immediately implement and take home, what would that be? I think one of the simpler ones, but more powerful ones is to let kids have their feelings and validate them and talk about feelings. So just like make feelings kind of a bigger part of your parenting vocabulary and world, because from the research, it seems as though when we talk about feelings, when we let kids have feelings, we make it easier for them to develop a skill called theory of mind, which is essentially like the ability to put yourself in another person's shoes to understand and sort of perceive how another person is feeling. And this is really, really important for the development of like generosity, empathy, and helpfulness, because in order to help another person, in order to, you know, make them feel better if they're sad, you have to be able to perceive that they are sad. And you have to be able to sort of look at their body language, look at their face and perceive, wow, you know, my friend is really upset right now. And what could I do to make them feel better? There's some really interesting research on this that I think illustrates this power of talking about emotions. Um, there's one study that I cited in the book where researchers invited moms again and <laughs> preschoolers into the lab. And similar to, I guess, the, the race study, they had their parents, the moms, read books to the kids. And the researchers recorded how frequently the moms paused the reading to talk about feelings. So like, to say, you know, oh, what do you think this character's feeling? Or look at look at his face there. What do you think? What do you think he's thinking or feeling? And the uh, assumption was that moms who talked about feelings in this part of the experiment probably did that a lot at home. So then, in the second part of the experiment, researchers took the kids one by one into another room and had them play with a researcher. And during the play, the researcher would pretend to need help with something. So um, she would drop her pencil and say, 
oh, I can't reach my pencil. I wish I could pick it up. Or she would pretend to be cold and say, I'm so cold. I wish I had that blanket over there across the room and just make these like really obvious pleas for help essentially. And the researchers found that the kids whose moms talked about feelings more in the first part of the experiment were much more likely to help the researchers in the second part of the experiment. And that is just like a really fascinating, you know, correlational finding. It doesn't prove that talking about feelings leads kids to be helpful, but it certainly suggests there's a correlation there. And it's really, I think, comes down to like the ability of kids to to get just more comfortable with feelings, to recognize them. Um, And also like allowing your kids to have feelings and talking about them will then help your children figure out how to manage their own feelings. And so that when they feel angry, they can respond to it in a constructive way rather than like throwing a book across the room. And so the the more we like are compassionate in our responses to kids when they have big feelings, even if we don't understand why they're freaking out, which I feel like is often the case, the more we can just give them that space and say, oh my gosh, you're so mad that I gave you the purple cup. I know you're so mad and let them have that moment and sort of let them sit with it. Like the better able they are to then manage those emotions over time. That is so hard and so counterintuitive because of course in the moment you're just like, stop crying. I know. It's just a cup. (laughs) It's so hard because it just seems so ridiculous. And yeah. And like, also you're, you can't help but think that like they're putting it on, like they're not really this upset. They're just like trying to make a scene and embarrass you, especially if it's like in the middle of the supermarket, you're like, yeah. Really? <laughs> and, and, and even sometimes I'm like, I, you know, the, they're giving themselves more pain than they need. Like if I just tell them that it doesn't matter which cup I gave you, like, you know what I mean? But that's not how things work. I know. And in those moments, like I try my best now to try to put myself in their shoes. Like, okay, you know, kids have so little control over their world. And so things like which color cup they get or whether their apple is cut up or whole, which seems so silly to us. To them, it's like the one thing that they feel like they can exert their control over because everything else is like decided by us and their teachers. And so it becomes like representative of this really important thing for them. Like it really does like, it's it really, it means the world to them. And so when then they don't get it the way they want it, it's like everything really really does come crashing down. So I try in those moments, I do not always succeed, <laughs> but I try to think like, for whatever reason, this actually really matters to her. And I'm going to just have to accept that. <laughs> okay. I have one more question um, that comes from my very personal experience, but also seems to be a question that you get a lot at your parenting column. So it's not just me, which is, you know, I feel like I have control over my relationship with each of my kids. I feel like, you know, I can model good behavior for the most part. Um, I feel like I can validate their feelings for the most part. But then add a sibling to the mix. <laughs> and I feel like my kids' behavior just degrades when the other sibling is there. And then the sibling is such a huge influence in their lives. So what should parents do when there's, you know, fighting between siblings or where, you know, you get the situation where the sibling is really degrading the child's behavior? Yes, this is such a big one. (laughs) It's really interesting. There's actually researchers who specifically study sibling relationships. It's fascinating. And first, I just want to start out by saying that it is totally normal for siblings to fight. It is not a sign that like your kids are terrible or there's anything wrong with them. Like it is just the way of the world. Um, Every group of siblings fights. Um, And so that's just the, I just want to start off with that. (laughs) But yeah, so what do we do? Um, It was really interesting tracing the sort of history of the research literature on this because it used to be 
that psychologists would essentially tell parents, let your kids work out their conflicts on their own. This will help them, you know, develop conflict resolution skills, just leave them be, and they'll figure it out. And then when they actually, when researchers started trying to understand what really happened when they, (laughs) when parents let their kids be, they found, no, this doesn't really lead to a a very good resolution. (laughs) Usually the, the dominant child, often the older child will win using coercion or physical force. Um, and that, (laughs) right. And that of course is teaching kids kind of the opposite of what we want them to learn. They are now learning that like coercion and physical force are the best way to solve problems. So then psychologists were like, huh, well, what should we tell parents to do? Like, what should we be looking at? And of course, another approach that a lot of parents take is to be like a referee and to, when you hear your kids fight, to sort of jump in and like decide who's right and who's wrong and say like, Jody, you're hogging the teddy bear. Give it to your brother right now. You know, we just like decide that, you know. Jody's wrong and and she needs to give up the thing that they've been fighting over. But this also is problematic for a few reasons. I mean, one is like, we don't always know the context of, you know, the fight that we jump into. We don't always really know if like Jody's the, the problem or the other kid is the problem. You know, if there is a kid who's a problem, maybe there's not. And also it's not always great for our relationship with our kids. I mean, if we're constantly kind of siding with one child over the other, um, this can lead to resentment and it can lead to resentment towards us, but also the siblings towards each other. And so that's not always the most helpful either. Okay. So So what do we have left? So what do we do? Um, So what researchers now have been studying and they've done clinical trials on this actually is what's called mediation, essentially. And it is basically just like what you would think mediation is. So if your kids are fighting, and let me preface this by saying this is not something you can do all of the time, because it is time consuming, especially at first. But I have found that once I've done it, once I did it like a a few times with my kids, they started to figure out how to do it themselves. So, So when kids start fighting, and you hear it, you go into the room, and first you acknowledge their feelings and say something like, I hear a lot of angry voices in here. What, you know, it sounds like you're upset. And if you can sort of figure out, like often they're fighting over something. And if they're fighting over a teddy bear, then you say, okay, I'm going to take the teddy bear for a minute. And we're all going to take some deep breaths and calm down for a few minutes. And then we're going to talk about this because sometimes they're so upset. They can't possibly, you know, have a conversation. So you let them calm down, take the time they need. And then when everybody's calm, you get everybody together again and you ask each child to share what happened from their perspective. And so you say, yeah, Jody, tell me, tell me what happened. Start from the beginning. Tell me, you know, what, what happened from your perspective and how you felt about it. And so then, and you, you say like, John, you're going to have time to talk in a second and we're not going to interrupt. So then Jody explains what happened from her perspective And you kind of try to pair it back like, okay, here's what you, you know, here's what you were thinking happened. And here's how you felt. You felt really upset because it felt unfair, et cetera, et cetera. And then you turn to the other child and you have the other child say what happened from their perspective. And this is really helpful because this gets back to this theory of mind that I was talking about earlier, um, which is the skill that allows you to really understand what other people are feeling and how that could be different from what you're feeling. And when you have each child share what happened from their perspective in front of the other child, this can be really illuminating for them. Like, because in their mind, there's only one way to look at what happened and it's their way. And they hear about the other child and what they experienced. And I mean, not always, but sometimes it's like, oh, a light, a light bulb goes off and they're like, oh my gosh, yeah, I didn't 
I didn't perceive it that way at all, but I guess I could see how they would feel that way. And also it, again, like with refereeing, when you jump in, you're essentially kind of shaming the the kids for having their big feelings. Like you're like, you're angry, stop it, you know, stop fighting, stop having the big feelings. But with mediation, you're actually doing the opposite. You're telling their, the kids that their feelings are important and you want to hear them and, you know, you, you want them to understand each other's feelings. So it's kind of doing the opposite again with the whole feeling thing. And then after that, you then try to help the kids brainstorm a solution, essentially, so a way that you can solve the problem where both of them will be relatively happy. And sometimes that takes a little time. Sometimes their, you know, their ideas are just totally bonkers. <laughs> but you kind of help them rein it in. And I know it sounds impossible. And I thought, like, there's no way that this is going to work with my kids. And certainly, like, the first time or two, it was a little bumpy because, like, one kid would want to interrupt the other, and you know, like, it took a little getting used to. But honestly, like, it it has really helped us. And the kids have seemed like really surprised learning about the other child's perspective sometimes. And, and it like, you could sort of see it on their face, like, oh gosh, like, wow, I never thought of that. And I, I, yeah. And then sometimes now they will actually do the whole media mediation process themselves. I mean, they'll come to like a cooperative solution that they never would have before, but they'll like talk through it. Like, well, what if, what if you have it for two more minutes and then I have it for three minutes Would that work? And like, it's amazing when they do that. It's, and again, it's not every time, but the research too, there has, as I said, been clinical trials on this. And the research really shows that when parents are trained on how to do this, they are really happy to have learned it. They keep using it once the trial's over. And the kids, when they are observed in the lab, like, and they're allowed to sort of get into a fight when they're playing, those kids who have been through this process and been taught by their parents how to use it really do solve arguments much more cooperatively. And it's much less likely that the like dominant older kid will win. So it's really interesting. Yeah. That, that sounds like, like something we need to implement right away, but also that I need to take a nap first. <laughs> like, it's like, I know. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely sounds like the right step forward. And I suppose that after a certain time, it just becomes part of your repertoire. And like, like anything starting, you know, a new lifestyle change, it's more work in the beginning. I used to have this, uh, this, this trainer who used to say the first 10 minutes of the workout are, are the worst and then it only gets easier from there. So it sounds like this is kind of in that same vein. Yeah, exactly. I think that's, it's like an investment, you know, yeah, it's like an investment exactly. in your sanity, but it definitely takes some work at first. Well, uh, for our listeners, uh, Melinda Wenner-Moyer's book, How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes, is available at booksellers everywhere. And you also have a newsletter they can subscribe to. How do they find out about that? Yes, I have a sub stack newsletter called Is My Kid the Asshole? <laughs> Based on the Reddit meme or whatever you call it, um, where I basically am answering parents' questions about challenging kid behavior. Like, why does my kid freak out when I tell them to turn off the iPad? Like, what's going on? And it tries to explain, you know, what's going on in their brains and why they often have trouble and then gives parents strategies for dealing with those moments. So it's on Substack. But honestly, probably the easiest way to sign up for my newsletter and also just like if they want to get purchase links for the book is to go to my website, which is melindawennermoyer.com. And there's a sign up there for the newsletter. And there's also, yeah, information about the book and purchase links and stuff. Well, as someone who doesn't read parenting books, I highly recommend yours. So thank you thank so much you. for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you, Indre. This is awesome. And I'm, I'm so glad you liked it. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. 
If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Cheng, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Raihalla, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Charles Blyle, and Dale Lamaster. Inquiring Minds is produced by Podigy, and I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.